Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, so if, uh, if, if you are new here, uh, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor here, and, and, and typically... We go through books of the Bible here at King's Cross, and we do that because it sort of forces us to, on the one hand, like get acquainted with the scriptures in sort of a holistic way. We get to see how the parts fit together, how one passage flows into the next, and how all the books kind of line up and fit together. But it also ensures that what you're getting is not just like some preacher's ideas or opinions or personal passions and then using the Bible to support that. But instead, we get to do what Christians have done for centuries and just feast upon the Word of God. And so we've been going through the entire Gospel of Mark for most of this year. We started in about like February. We started with Mark chapter 1, and we've been in Mark for most of the year. We took a break last month in August so that, uh, on the one hand, you guys could hear from some of my friends who, who came and, and preached for us. Some of them were members of this church. Uh, but also so that I could spend some time out of the pulpit to, to some focus time to sort of like reflect on all that God has done since we started this thing, uh, this new church community, and to reflect now on where we're headed in the future. And taking that time off from preaching was, was a rich time for me. It was a good, it was a fruitful, it was a rich time for me because I got to reflect on some of the awesome things that God has done uh, in us and through us over the last several months. We've seen people who've decided to start following Jesus for the first time, people who've gotten baptized for the first time. Others have decided to come back to church uh, uh, after like decades being away from the church. Uh, we've seen, like, I mean, when we started this thing, we had, like, seven pregnant women, right? Like, all those babies are here now, and it seems like we have seven other pregnant women uh, at, at the church. Uh, we've seen others, people, come to King's Cross to be sort of a safe place to, to heal emotionally and spiritually from just hard stuff in life that they're going through right now. And, man, I just want to say, like, I, I love this church. Like, truly, I love our church. I love you guys. And as I was praying about, like, just what God has done and, and where he has us right now and what's coming up for us as a church family, one of the passages that the Lord just kept drawing me back to again and again was this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. And so we're going to dive into this text and into Ephesians 4, and we're going to answer the most, one of the most foundational questions that we can ask ourselves as a new church. 
Well, what is the local church for anyway? That's the question we're going to look into. What is the local church for anyway? The short answer, I'll kind of give, give it to you up front. I do this every now and then. It's kind of like a classic Tarantino move, right? Like I give you the ending up front, and then we're going to go work back to the beginning and see how we, we get there. But uh, up front, I want to tell you guys that the local church, what it's for is it's the ordained means for maturing Christians. It's the ordained means for maturing Christians. God's final goal for us is to grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And he does that through the local church. So we're going to dive into the text and unpack these four points. We're going to see how the local church is where we first connect with God's people. Secondly, where we receive God's gifts. Third, where we serve in God's ministry. And Fourth, lastly, it's where we speak and receive God's truth in love. There's a lot more that can be said about the local church, but we're in Ephesians 4 this morning, and so these are the four things that I want us to consider this morning. Let's look at that first one. Connect with God's people. The local church is where we connect with God's people. It's the place you connect with God. Uh, it's, it's through the local church. It's, it's the local church is a means through which we connect with the God of the Bible. And see, this connection is vital for the Christian life. I want you to look at verse 1 with me. Paul is writing here, and he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what you need to know is that Paul, the apostle, is writing this letter to a local church. He's writing the book of Ephesians is a letter to a local church, a church in Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians. And he's writing this letter while he's in jail. And why is he in jail? It's because it's about the year 62 AD when he's writing this. And Paul's this guy who was slaughtering Christians left and right until Jesus saved him and he became one. And now his former colleagues have him in jail. And that's where he is when he writes this letter to the Ephesians church. This is a church that he spent years at. He had a heart for this church. He spent years at this church. He helped them plant. He helped them get started as a young church community. He was with them kind of like where we're at right now as a new church community. Paul was with them in those early stages. And he's suffering in jail, and he's writing this letter to, 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 to this church. And this, the book of Ephesians, just to give you a quick overview, what he's writing this letter about uh, is he's unpacking, throughout the book of Ephesians, he's unpacking just the beauty and the wonder of God's unfolding plan of salvation in history. In Ephesians chapter 1, where he starts, he lays out the fact that God predestined you to be adopted into his family. And then in Ephesians 2, he starts to lay out how God's great plan of salvation is actually fleshed out. How we're saved by grace through faith, not by ourselves. We read that earlier. How salvation doesn't come from what we do, but from what Jesus has done. And then at the end of chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul introduces then this beautiful thing that we call the church. I want you really quickly to read what he says about the church at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 19, he says to this church, he says, So then, 
in light of this gospel, in light of the fact that you've been saved, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, you church, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the foundation, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, what this scripture is saying is that you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then you and I, we were strangers and sojourners once. We were wayfarers, rain dogs who've wandered from home. But then Christ brought us together. He saved us to him and then also to each other. And so Christ brought us together, not just as fellow citizens of his new kingdom, but also, as he says, as members of the household of God. And I love that. I love that he calls us members of the household of God. I just love that because it tells us that in the church, as a member of the church, like, I'm not just visiting, I'm actually at home. That's why we sometimes use the language about having a church home, the household of God. You see, there's another foundational point being made here at the end of Ephesians 2, and that's that the church is not primarily a place, but it's a people. When we think of church, we tend sometimes we think of a building, right? Right, like when you think, if you come here to King's Cross, maybe you think of like our janky setup that we have here as a, as a church plant in the theater, right? Like, but that, this, is, this, this place is not a church. People are the church. There's no location. There's, no, there's like no Mecca for us. There's no special holy city or temple for us where God dwells. Jesus says that you will find his presence and power in this Sunday gathering, coming together as his people, just as much as they did back in the Old Testament in the temple. Because God's dwelling place, the church, is primarily a people. That's why it says in, in chapter 2, verse 21, that, that, that when the whole structure is joined together, when the people in a local church, when they join together, when they have this unity, that it grows into, what does it say? A holy temple, a dwelling place of God. Switch back now to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, where we started. Read verse 1 again with me. He says, I... Therefore, so when he says therefore, he's meaning, so in light of all of this, in light of the salvation that I described in Ephesians 1 and 2, in light of the church that I, the beauty of the church that I introduced in Ephesians 19, in light of all of this, he says, I, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Everything that I described for you, everything that I unpacked for you, this, this thing, this salvation, this church, this new life to which you've been called to, I now want you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. What does that look like? He answers in verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul's saying here, he's saying, look, 
church family. Look, church family, look, Ephesians church, in light of the fact that you've been saved from death to life, in light of the fact that you've been saved from selfishness to selflessness, live in light of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of that salvation. And he says you do this now. You live in light of, in, in a manner worthy of that salvation by by loving one another, by being humble toward one another, by being patient with one another, by being unified despite your differences in diversity, by gathering together. You become one, and it communicates to the world beautiful things. That's what Paul says. When you walk in a manner worthy of your calling, when you live in this manner, it communicates beautiful things to the world. It communicates God's wisdom. That's what it says in chapter 3. There's an early Christian writer named Cyprian who once quipped. He said, no one can have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. No one can can have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. It's kind of a clever way for him to say, look, these two things, they come hand in hand. You You can't consider God your father. You can't say that you're a follower of him in any meaningful sense of the word if you're not connected to a local church. You can't. Sometimes, like, we live in such an individualistic, like, consumeristic sort of culture, especially, like, our generation. Like, like I was born in the early 80s, right? If, if, if that's like you, if you were born around, around that age and, or later, like, th- that generation, we're so individualistic, consumeristic, that, that, that we, like, our, our sense of spirituality, of Christian spirituality, it's like, you know, just like kind of me with my Bible in a coffee shop, maybe one or two of my homies, and like, that's it, right? Like, that's me doing church. In a sense, that is a way of, of being the church, of being the people of God. But that's not church in the truest sense of the word. I mean, that word that we get church from, that Greek word ecclesia, like literally means public assembly, public gathering of people. It's what we do every Sunday on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose. It's what we do in our home groups when we scatter throughout the week. What Cyprian was saying here with his quote is that these two things come hand in hand. The place you connect with God primarily is with the context of relationships, within the context of community, within the context of worship in the local church. That's always been the understanding from the New Testament scriptures. That's always been the understanding throughout church history. People have only deviated from that in just the last few decades. But we can't have the one without the other. We can't be a follower of God in any meaningful sense without a relationship with the local church. I heard somebody say once, it's like, it's like if you told if you if you went up to me and and said, like, hey man, like I I'm cool with you, like I love hanging out with you, but like I can't I can't stand hanging out with your wife, right? 
It's like, no, we're like a, we, we come together, right? Like, if you want to hang out with me, then you need to love to hang out with my wife. She's cool, right? Like, you can't have the one without the other. And so that's our first point. The local church is the place that you live out life connected both with God and his people. Secondly, the local church is where we receive God's gifts. Now, we see that down in verse 7. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so, and so what he's saying here is even though uh, we're to have unity and peace, right, which is what he talked about in the first six verses, and now in verse 7 he says, but, he says, but, but grace. So even though we're to have that oneness, that unity and peace that he talked about in the first six verses of chapter 4, even though we're all one in Christ, He's saying here, there's a diversity in the church in the way that we are spiritually gifted. And that diversity is wonderful. It's beautiful. Christ has gifted each member of the church in diverse ways with particular gifts, with particular talents. That's what the text says. You might be sitting here thinking like, well, I don't feel like I have any gifts, right? I don't feel like I have anything to contribute. Well, you can trust, like, are you going to trust your own self-intuition or are you going to look at what God's word says and say, no, this says that God's grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of his gift. So who gives the gifts? Is it pastors? Is it elders? Is it yourself? Is it self-appointed? No, it says here in verse 7 that God is the sovereign one who bestows those gifts. And who gets the gifts? It says every follower of Jesus. It says there in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us. Who's us? Christians. Members of the church. He's writing to a whole church here. He's not saying to us pastors. He's not writing to the pastors of that church. He's not saying to us pastors. He's not saying, hey, to some believers only. He's talking about all of us. The whole church. That means that if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are coming into this church community with batteries included, with your own set of spiritual gifts, your own abilities, your own passions, your own experiences, your own background, your own spiritual wiring that's being intended to be used by God for God with his people. There's no such thing as an accident in the body of Christ. No such thing as an accident. When you received God's grace, Jesus Christ gave it in measure suited to his good purposes for you and for the church. And so he gives us gifts. He gives us gifts to serve, not to spread the fame of your own name, but to spread the fame of his name, of Jesus' name. He gives gifts not to build your own platform or reputation, but to commend Jesus' world-transforming reputation. Read, read, read the next verse, verse 8, with me. He says, therefore, it says, when he, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this kind of pops up as sort of a weird quote out of nowhere. 
You'll notice it's in quotations because what Paul is doing here is he's quoting Psalm 68. And in Psalm 68, it's all about how the God of the Bible is a redeeming warrior kind of God who both conquers his enemies, liberates his people, but he doesn't just leave them there. He also lavishes his people with gifts. He lavishes them with gifts. And, and, and Paul's saying that's what God is doing here. The way that God is described in Psalm 68, when he, held, uh, when he led a host of captives out of captivity, he gave gifts to men and women. Like Paul is referring to that and saying that's who God is. He gives us gifts to serve. So quick point of application here. Ask yourself, like, if you know, if you say that you know this God, if you say that you're a follower of this God, the God of the Bible, then have you received the gifts that he's given you? Have you willingly received the gifts that he's given you? Every single one of us has a set of spiritual gifts, a set of abilities that God has equipped us with, maybe unique passions, experiences that have shaped who you are that are unique to you. It could be the gift of teaching, teaching others the Bible. It could be the gift of encouragement. When somebody's having a hard time or feeling down on themselves, it could be the gift of hospitality or service to people on the outside, on the margins. It could be the ability to maybe coach other people like in life or in finances, in parenting. It could be the gift of generosity where you financially support kingdom work. Whatever gifts that God has given you, whatever desires, whatever impulses that he's wired you with, have you received those gifts? And do you value your gifts? Do you use them? Two common pitfalls we can fall into is on the one hand thinking that, 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 that on the one hand that we don't have any gifts to contribute, which if you look at this text would say that that's not true. Every single one of us has gifts and experiences that we can serve a body with. Another common pitfall we can fall into is when we don't receive the gifts that we're given and we want to have the gifts that others have. We sort of play the comparison game. You say, you know, like, man, I know I'm good at this, but man, I want, I want to be like, like that girl. I want to serve like that guy. We play the comparison game, and it just eats away at our souls. It keeps us, us from serving. It keeps us from plugging into the local church because we're always on the defensive. We always have this, this wall. And so we need to serve with the gifts that God has given us, which leads us into our third point, is that we serve in God's ministry. We serve in God's ministry. You see, the reason we call it God's ministry is because God is the one who ministers to his people through the gifts that he's given us. Did you hear that? God ministers to his people through the gifts that he's given us. It's his ministry. Read verse 11 with me. It says, He, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. 
So verse 11 here is is telling us that God calls, he equips, he ordains leaders in the church whose primary role is to serve as equippers. He says, leaders of the church, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, pastors, their job is to equip the others. You see, that's my job as your pastor. Pastors and teachers and evangelists are those whose ministry is to equip the rest of the church to serve and to grow, to live for God's glory, to live for the good of our neighbors. That is the role of church leadership. And that's what we, that's what we, 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 we do. The reason that we, we preach God's word, the reason that we gather in community, the reason that we do the things that we do is so that all of us can find our, our place, can find where we can plug in to use our gifts to build up the church in love. When Jesus ascended, after his resurrection, when he ascended on high and the Spirit of God came down to equip us with gifts, those gifts were given to make sure that the church would function in a particular manner with those who are the equippers and those who are equipped. Sometimes we treat church as a place we go where just a few people have all the influence and do all the ministry. And then we put those people up on a pedestal. That's a sad outlook, a sad posture to have because according to the scriptures here, God gave leadership in the church not so that leaders would say, look at me, but so that they would equip you every member to fulfill the ministry that God has given you to build each other up in love. That's what the local church is all about. We can say every member has a ministry. We could say every member is in some sense a minister, somebody who ministers to the people around them. This is one of the things that I love about church planting. About starting uh, with kind of like your shoestring budget from the ground up, church planting. Because we have this unique opportunity as a brand new church, as a small group of people united by a common mission. We have this unique opportunity to develop sort of this all-hands-on-deck sort of culture. Because somewhere along the lines, like we in the Western church, with our consumerism and individualism, like somewhere along the lines, we bought into this false notion that ministry is only done by those with a title or those with a role. And so we say, you know, I'm not going to minister to others until we start a ministry for this. I'm not going to be connected to others unless we have this kind of ministry. And I'm not going to do anything unless I'm given a role, unless I'm given a job or job description. This passage deconstructs that old way of thinking and says, no, if you are a member of a church, if you are just a person who's following Jesus, every saint, every member has been gifted by Almighty God for meaningful ministry. Every person. Look at verse 12 again with me. He says, the goal is to, to equip the saints for the work of Ministry. Now, really quick, that, that phrase to equip the saints, which saints? All saints. Who is a saint? The New Testament says that everyone who is a true believer in Christ is considered a saint. 
There's some denominations and traditions that will say a saint is somebody who's special, who's holy, who's venerated. But the scriptures themselves, the New Testament says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are considered a saint. That's what a saint is. It's somebody who's been saved from their sin to God. And says every single saint here is equipped for some type of ministry and needs to be involved, needs to be participating. Read the rest of verse 12 now. He says, you're equipped for the saint, or the saints are equipped for the work of the ministry. It says, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what does this tell us? This tells us that if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, If you want to grow in maturity in Christ, then you need to be using your gifts to serve others in the church. If you want to grow in maturity in Christ, if that's you this morning, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, then you need to be serving others in a local church and you need to open yourself up to be served by them too. Uh, a few months ago, uh, my, my wife, uh, Alyssa, and I, we kind of set up an inflatable pool in our front yard of our house uh, for uh, some of our, uh, some of the neighbors and some friends that we had over, uh, the, the kids, that is. <laughs> we set up an inflatable pool in the front of our house. Uh, it was like a few months ago, this was like a super hot day. It was like when it first started getting like really hot. It was like high 90s, like early, no, not early. Low 100s, <laughs> low 100s. So super hot day, uh, and uh, and so we're like, I mean, this is a perfect day to 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 pull out that inflatable pool that the Navarros gave us to to blow it up and to just like let it out, let the kids play in it. Uh, and a few hours later, when all when all the when all the activity when all the playing was done, uh, we left the pool out there because I'm like, man, this is fun. We should do this again tomorrow with the kids. And so we left the, 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 the pool out there, and Alyssa was like, hey, don't you think we should bring that in? Because like the, won't want, like the grass underneath, it's like hot, it's blazing down, the grass underneath will, 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 will die. And, and I explained to her, like, no, it, it's going to be fine. Like, I'm, we're not going to leave it out for more than like a day or like a day and a half. Because if you think about it, like, I mean, sometimes, like when skies are cloudy, right, and the sun can't get through anyways, like, I mean, our grass stays green. And so like, it's going to stay green. And so uh, I was like kind of explaining to her like my science behind it, right? Uh, and so like a day and a half later, we finally put the tool down and some, the pull down and, uh, somehow there was this giant brown rectangle on our lawn for like a week. And why did that happen? How did that happen? It's because the grass apparently doesn't just need sunlight. <laughs> it doesn't just need water. Apparently it needs oxygen too. I looked it up. Wikipedia. So the grass lacked the nutrients that it needed. No living thing grows without nutrients from the outside, without help from the outside. You need water and sunlight and oxygen if you plant something, because without that, without what it needs, it's going to eventually what? It's going to wither. One of the things that we need from the outside as believers is the gifts of other people in the church. We need that to grow. 
We need that to thrive. We need that to stay healthy and green. Without God-ordained servant leadership and without ministry happening between members of the church, you will be spiritually immature and with a total lack of self-awareness at how immature you are. Read about that in verse 14 with me. You see, another reason we need to be equipped for ministry, it says, so that, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So, so he's saying here, what is the purpose of all this ministry going on in the church? Paul says it's to prepare us for service so that the church can be built up and can become mature. That's, that's the goal, spiritual maturity. He says, you don't want to be like children anymore, like spiritual children. I find it fascinating and encouraging that Paul, the apostle, talks about how we will no longer be spiritual babies. We will no longer be children. I mean, that's Paul the apostle talking here. And that's because he's reminding his readers here that when the grace of God invades your life and transforms you from the inside out, you become a new creature. But you're still spiritually young at that point. And the Spirit doesn't create full-blown spiritual sages like that, but spiritual children. And some of you in this room, many of you in this room, are, are, are new to the Christian faith. You're new to the Christian faith. Like you haven't, you haven't really gone to church or, or, or really asked questions about Jesus until you started coming here. You're, you're new to this whole following Jesus thing. And sometimes if you're in that kind of place, if you're in, in, in that place, you can get discouraged when, 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 when life is kind of, kind of hard, when you hit a trial and you're trying to make sense of, man, how does, the, how does the hope of the gospel, how does my faith bear weight on this situation? How does it make sense of this situation? Or sometimes you get discouraged when you're just maybe sitting down with others and they're sort of chopping it up over the finer points of theology and ecclesiology, and, 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 and you're, you're like, man, I, this, I'm in over my head. It's okay to feel like that. It's okay to be there. Spiritual babies need room to grow. It takes time. Infants, children are still alive, right? Babies are still alive, but they have time and room to grow. And if you're a new Christian, you have a new life. You have a new, real new spiritual life. You're a new creature, but you also have room to grow, and that is okay. But others, others of us, Maybe we've been following Jesus for a long time, maybe for years. Maybe you grew up in the church, but you're still what Paul would call spiritually immature. And Paul gives warnings for all of us not to fall into that trap of spiritual immaturity. He says, look, you spiritual babies don't stay there. You who've been in the church for a while, like who are still spiritually children, he's saying, grow up. 
grow up. He says that right, right, right there in verse 14 when he says, you know, these, these are the people who are tossed to and fro by the way that the waves, uh, by, or tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and by deceitful schemes. Basically, he's saying spiritual immature people, they have little discernment with the things of God. All you parents out there, you know that real babies, they don't know like real babies, like not spiritual babies, real actual babies, don't know the difference between good food and bad food, right? I mean, they don't know the difference between food and not food, right? They'll stick anything in their mouths. Paul says spiritual babies don't know the difference between good teaching and bad teaching. They don't know the difference between biblical teaching and toxic teaching, between biblical teaching and unbiblical teaching. They're also easily swayed. They're tossed back and forth where one day you're like on fire for God because you just heard this like awesome sermon and then the next day you're, you're, you're just like distracted and you're apathetic. So how is it that we fight that? How is it that we grow in spiritual maturity? We kind of already discussed that uh, one way in our text, and that's by serving one another with the gifts that God has given us. We, when we serve each other, we help each other grow in maturity, and we grow ourselves when we do that. But the other way we find in verse 15, read it with me. It says, rather, instead of being immature, spiritually immature, he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Which leads us to our fourth point. The local church is where we speak and receive God's truth in love. We speak and receive God's truth in love. Now, this whole truth in love thing is critical to understanding the church. He says, rather, in verse 15, rather, in other words, instead of spiritual immaturity, instead of that, instead of being like a spiritual child through, uh, he says, be spiritually mature through speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, Paul says, will grow you to maturity in Christ. So instead of being spiritually immature, we're committed to speaking the truth and love to each other. And that, that, that I mean, that, that, that sounds like it should be a no-brainer, right? It should be a no-brainer. Like, well, yeah, of course we'll speak the truth and love to each other. But, but it's rare to actually see that lived out, right? It's rare to actually see that lived out. And I think it's because we know that hearing the truth is hard. And so sometimes speaking it is harder. It's like, you know, back when, when, when American Idol was running, those first weeks would run, and those first two episodes were always like a disaster, right? First two episodes of every season of American Idol is littered with people that just have these awful voices. It's like, how did they let you through, right? Obviously for the views, right? But it's just painful to watch. You know what would have solved that? A little truth and love, right? <laughs> All you need is a single person back home who was willing to have a short but hard conversation. It's like, how is there not one person willing to have a hard conversation with this guy? But to be clear, we need both truth and love. 
We need both of those, right? I'm not saying beat each other with the head with truth, right? I'm saying we need truth in love, truth and love. Because truth by itself, truth without love would result in what theologians have called being a jerk face, right? That's truth without love. Love without truth is just blind. There's no real substance there. Tim Keller articulates this better and in more detail in in his recent book on marriage. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. But then he says, God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. He says, the merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. And the conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. That's love. I love that. I love the way that he put that. Truth and love. You see, I need to be willing to do that for others. I need to be willing to speak the truth and love when my brother or sister in Christ is kind of going a little wayward. And I need others to do that for me. I need you guys to do that for me. This, this means that, that in, in our community as a church, we need to move eventually like beyond just small talk. There's nothing wrong with small talk. Like, I love small talk. My wife hates small talk. Like, sometimes we'll be hanging out with people that we just met. Uh, I'll be like, that was fun. And she's like, what do you mean that was fun? Like, that was draining, right? Like, we didn't talk about anything. I'm like, what do you mean? We talked about this. We talked about that. We talked about music. We talked about all this stuff, stuff about what we do, right? Uh, like, I felt like that was a great conversation. But small talk, there, there, there's, there's, at the end of the day, there's really nothing wrong with small talk. But at some point, to my wife's point, what she yearns for. At some point, you need to be willing to get into the crevices of your soul when you're talking to someone to consider what it is that you believe about God. And regardless of where you're at at with that this morning, to just be willing to, to, to talk about that, to talk about what you believe about who God is and how that, 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 that thought, how your relationship with him, how that bears weight on your everyday life. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, man, we, we need to have a concern for each other's spiritual maturity in that way. How is the gospel bearing weight in your life? And what happens when you speak the truth in love? What does that achieve? The answer is spiritual growth in Christ. Which again is our goal, isn't it? Spiritual growth in Christ. Read verse 16 with me. He says, From whom the whole body, it's talking about Jesus, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, when each part, everyone is working properly, that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
And so what he's saying is, look, church, when you grow into maturity in Christ, when you're joined and held together by him, when you receive the gifts that you've been equipped with from him, when each of you is working properly together, it makes the body grow. It makes all of us grow, and it builds us up in love. Maturity in Christ is marked by, and it's grounded in love. In love. That's why we do this, to be built up in love, love for God and love for others. That's why we do this. It's all about love. That's why you pursue maturity. That's why you pursue growth. This is why you serve. This is why you speak truth in love. This is why you commit yourself to a local church. And look, if you're visiting this morning, it doesn't have to be this local church. I mean, we hope you'll stay, but you don't have to. We just want you to be part of a healthy church, a healthy, grace-centered, gospel-centered, Bible-teaching church. If this isn't the right fit for you for that, we have friends around that we could point you in their direction. But we need the church. We need each other to be built up in love. Church can be messy because people are messy. Relationships are messy. Authentic community, the pursuit of it is hard. But it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. That's why we need these exhortations to pursue unity, to be humble, to be gentle. It's supposed to be. If the people around you are always easy to you, If the people you surround yourself are just happen to be always easy to you, then you can't really know if you love them or not. Maybe you just love yourself. And the reason you like having these people around is because they're easy for you. But if you contribute to local church in a way that is giving, in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that is biblical, but sometimes uncomfortable, forces you to give something of yourself in order to love somebody that's maybe very different from you, uh, and it comes from a different generation, votes for a different party, has different interests. If you contribute in a way that is giving and sacrificial and at times uncomfortable, but in the end is worth it, then man, the rewards are great because the reward is maturity in Christ. And if that is not the primary goal of your life, I understand some of you in this this room might not, not be Christians. You might not be followers of Jesus. But if you are a follower of Jesus, in the true sense of that word, then if maturity in Christ is not the primary goal of your life, then you have the wrong goal. I'm not saying don't have other goals. I'm not saying don't have family goals, don't have personal goals or vocational goals or financial goals. But I'm saying maturity in Christ, that needs to be the primary goal of your life. So ask yourself, where are you at in your spiritual growth? If you belong to Jesus this morning, where are you at in your spiritual growth? Are you growing? Are you growing in Christ? Is your commitment to Christ and to his bride, his people, is it, is it casual and consumeristic? 
Or is it marked by love, by service to God and to others? This is the manner that Paul encourages us to walk in. So we, we've unpacked, we've talked, we know now what we're called to do. To connect with God's people in the local church, to receive his gifts and serve others with those gifts, to build up one another in truth and love. But now, how do we do that? Where in the world are we going to get the power to do that well? And the answer is that we can't do that on our own. We can't do this well on our own. We need the Lord's help. You see, instead of saying, here's the standard, now live up to it, the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians church to live out of the gospel. He says, live out of the gospel. Just a chapter earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, towards the end in verse 16, Paul prays and he's saying, according to the riches of God's glory, May he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's what he prays for this church in Ephesus. He says, according to the riches of God's glory, may you be, be, be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And after he prays for them to be strengthened, that's when he says, now walk in this manner. Be united. Serve. Use your gift. Speak the truth in love. Where do we find the riches of God's glory? And that's chapter 3 speaks of. We find the riches of God's glory primarily at the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the cross of Jesus is, is the ultimate message, the ultimate good news, the ultimate message of truth and love. The gospel of the cross of Jesus confronts us with the reality that on the one hand we're so lost and jacked up and broken and sinful that nothing less than the death of God's Son can save us. But this gospel also comforts us with the good news that when Jesus went to the cross that he was willing to die for sinners like you, for sinners like me. And having saved us to a holy calling, to have set us apart to be his dwelling place, a holy temple, he now empowers us. He commissions us to walk in this manner, connected to his church, receiving and using the gifts that he gives us and building one another up in truth and love, all for his glory and for our good and growth. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.